You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 50 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We want to start off by saying that with this show, we're going to backtrack just a bit to discuss events that happened in eastern Virginia in May and June 1861. Even though with our previous episodes on events in western Virginia, we actually went up to July already with our coverage of the Battle of Rich Mountain. And we'll be doing this quite often throughout the course of the podcast from here on out. And we hope that when we do this forward and reverse, forward and reverse maneuvering with regard to the timeline, it won't throw you guys off. But there's not really any other way to handle the fact that we're going to be attempting to construct a single narrative of the entire war. And that narrative will be made up of different events that happened in different places but that often happened simultaneously. So, for instance, like with the events in Western Virginia at Philippi and at Rich Mountain, we followed that story through to July 1861. But now to tell the story of what was happening during that same time frame in Eastern Virginia, we need to rewind the timeline to May. So we hope that makes sense, and hopefully the way it plays out during the course of the podcast will seem logical, But again, we think you guys are pretty smart cookies, and you would have figured all of that out even without us telling you. But we figured we'd just go ahead and give you a heads up about how we'll be handling different events that happened in different places, but that often happened at the same time. And so, having said that, off we go to Eastern Virginia. On May 22, 1861, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory decided the Union Army was too close not to make a run for it. And so during the day, they slipped into the woods and laid low, waiting until darkness covered the Virginia Peninsula. As night fell, the three men set out on the bay in a small skiff and paddled as quietly as possible. After landing near Fort Monroe, they approached Federal Pickets, who offered the runaway slaves shelter for the night, but said that in the morning the three men would have to plead their case to the fortress's new commanding officer. When Baker, Townsend, and Mallory decided to make a run for it on that day in May of 1861 and go to the Union Army at nearby Fort Monroe, they had no way of knowing for certain how they would be received. What they did know is that the soldiers in blue there on the Lower Peninsula somehow, some way, represented freedom. And so the three discontented and independent-minded men decided to take their fates into their own hands 
and make a daring bid to claim that freedom which they knew in their hearts was their natural right. Just a month or so after the firing on Fort Sumter, when Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory courageously decided to act on that impulse to escape to the freedom the Union Army represented, they had no way of knowing they were making history, but making history is exactly what they were doing because their bid for freedom was not just the desperate act of three runaway slaves. It was actually the momentous first step on the historic road to emancipation. On May 22, 1861, Major General Benjamin F. Butler took command of Union forces at Fort Monroe. The fortress was situated at the southern tip of Virginia's peninsula at Old Point Comfort, about 75 miles southeast of Richmond. At the time of the Civil War, Monroe was the largest coastal fort in the United States, having been designed so that its guns would command the channel from Chesapeake Bay into Hampton Roads, the roadstead into which flows the James, Elizabeth, and Nansamond Rivers. The fort also commanded the passage between Hampton Roads and the mouth of the York River. Besides commanding the surrounding waterways, the strategic position of Fort Monroe also meant that it could be utilized as an ideal staging area for a federal attack on Richmond, using the peninsula to approach the Confederate capital from the southeast. And so the important fortress was a thorn in the side of the Confederacy, since it inconveniently remained in Union hands throughout the war. As for Benjamin Butler, we met him back in episode 38 when he managed to cleverly finagle his way into commanding the 1st Massachusetts troops going to Washington, D.C. Butler was living proof that political considerations sometimes played a major role in the appointment of general officers. In both the North and South, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis found it necessary to factor in political considerations as carefully in appointing generals as in naming members of their cabinets. Early on in the conflict, Lincoln was particularly concerned to cultivate Democratic support for the war, so he commissioned a large number of prominent Democrats, among them Benjamin Butler, a Massachusetts lawyer and politician and a lifelong Democrat. These appointments made political sense, but sometimes produced military disaster. The term political general became almost a synonym for incompetency, especially in the North. But this was often unfair. Some men appointed for political reasons became first-class commanders during the Civil War. And in any case, West Point-trained professional soldiers held most of the top commands in both North and South. But at any rate, in 1861, there seemed no way around the appointment of political generals. As James McPherson points out in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, The appointment of political generals, like the election of company officers, was an essential part of the process by which a highly politicized society mobilized for war, end quote. After Butler's dramatic and unauthorized occupation of Baltimore made the War Department nervous about his recklessness in the sensitive environment of Maryland, he was sent down to Fort Monroe to take command of the new Department of Virginia. Butler took command at Fort Monroe on May 22nd. On the 25th, Butler reported to General-in-Chief Winfield Scott an incident that had taken place the day after he assumed command. Three runaway slaves, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory, 
field hands who were owned by Confederate Colonel Charles Mallory had delivered themselves up to federal pickets. After their arrival at the fortress, Butler separately interviewed Baker, Townsend, and Mallory about the work they had been doing for the Confederates. Realizing that their labor only benefited the Union's enemies, Butler decided to protect the three men and provide them with employment, since he had a great need for labor within the Union lines on the Lower Peninsula. The next day, Major John Carey of the Confederate Army approached the Union lines under a flag of truce and was taken to meet Butler. Carey said he was representing Colonel Mallory and that Mallory demanded the return of his slaves as per the Federal Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which required the return of runaway slaves to their masters. Butler was just the man to appreciate the irony in the fact that a Confederate officer was demanding the return of his human property by invoking a law of the very government the Confederate was fighting against. Well, to explain what happened next, we'll turn to Glenn David Brasher's book, The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation. Quote, Butler had been one of the most successful criminal trial lawyers in the state of Massachusetts, and he put his courtroom skills to good use. He informed Carey that he intended to retain the slaves. Do you mean then, Carey asked, to set aside your constitutional obligations to return fugitive slaves? I mean to abide by the decision of Virginia as expressed in her ordinance of secession, Butler Coley replied. I am under no constitutional obligations to a foreign country, which Virginia now claims to be. Carey reminded Butler that Lincoln maintained that the southern states could not secede and were still part of the nation. To be consistent with that reasoning, he declared, you cannot detain the Negroes. Challenged by that logic, Butler shot back, but you say that you have seceded, and thus you cannot consistently claim them. Then Butler went for the kill by declaring that if the owner wished to come into the fort and take the oath of allegiance to the United States, he could have the men back. That ended the matter. End quote. In his official report to Winfield Scott about the incident, Butler said, quote, I am credibly informed that the Negroes in this neighborhood are employed in the erection of batteries and other works by the rebels, which it would be nearly or quite impossible to construct without their labor. End quote. Butler informed Scott that he was putting the three runaways to work in his quartermaster's department, since he didn't see why such so-called property should be permitted to be used against the United States, rather than in support of the cause of the nation. Two days later, Butler wrote again, saying that, quote, The question in regard to slave property is becoming one of very serious magnitude. End quote. You see, Baker, Townsend, and Mallory had explained to the Northerners that other slaves would soon know that the Union Army had sheltered them, and that as a result, more would come into the Federal lines. And that is just what happened. Two days after Major Carey's visit, eight more slaves showed up at Fort Monroe. The next day, more than four dozen runaways, including a three-month-old infant, came to the gates of what the slaves on the peninsula were now calling the Freedom Fort. The number of runaway slaves coming into his lines was growing, and Butler confessed to Scott, quote, the utmost doubt about what to do with this species of property, end quote. But recognizing the vital aid these slaves were providing to the enemy, Butler concluded that, quote, as a military question, it would seem to be a measure of necessity to deprive their masters of their services, end quote. 
Butler decided to declare the runaway slaves contraband of war and confiscated them as a function of military power. Contraband stuck as the term applied to all the slaves who ran off and entered Union lines during the course of the Civil War. Now, there's some doubt as to whether Butler himself actually applied the term to the slaves who made their way to Fort Monroe, but Butler was celebrated for his legal ingenuity, and he no doubt appreciated that the clever application of the phrase contraband of war with regard to runaway slaves would muddy the waters just enough to provide cover for his actions. That's because the discussion of what was contraband was a hot topic at the time Butler made his decision to shelter the runaway slaves. For example, on May 17th, less than a week before Baker, Townsend, and Mallory made their way to Fort Monroe, a headline in the New York Times read, What are contraband goods? And the list covered goods and services being used to support the Confederacy, and included such items as food, clothing, munitions, gold and silver coin, and much more. And in the weeks leading up to Butler's action, newspapers had been reporting regularly on the seizure of contraband being smuggled into the Confederacy. After Butler's decision, the phrase contraband of war, as applied to slaves, captured the northern public's imagination. Newspapers reported the doctrine received widespread support and furnished, quote, unmingled satisfaction to the public, end quote. The Chicago Tribune proclaimed, quote, Butler is right. Let him treat every slave belonging to a rebel as contraband and confiscate him as he would a musket or a cannon. And if he can't give them freedom, he can give them employment, end quote. After a cabinet meeting on May 30th, in which Lincoln jokingly referred to Butler's fugitive slave law, the Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, wrote to Butler officially approving his actions, but leaving uncertain what this meant exactly in terms of the status of the contrabands. Were they free? Would they be returned to their masters once peace came? Did the policy apply to the slave states still in the Union? All Cameron would say was that, quote, their final disposition will be reserved for future determination, end quote. By that time, entire slave families were making their way to Fort Monroe. By the end of July, Butler had 900 contrabands on his hands. He recognized that it was a stretch to use the term contraband of war to cover women and children who are not actually working on Confederate batteries or fortifications. And so Butler realized that what had started off as a somewhat justifiable military necessity had quickly transformed into a touchy political question and a full-blown humanitarian concern. And from Washington came an answer. As for the families of the men, Lincoln said that, quote, The government neither should nor would send back into bondage such as came to our armies, end quote. Butler was instructed not to encourage runaways to come, but to, quote, refrain from surrendering to alleged masters any persons who may come within your lines, end quote. And so with these directives, the Lincoln administration took its first baby steps toward formulating a policy on runaway slaves. But the instructions given to Benjamin Butler at the Freedom Fort were understood to be only a temporary solution since, as Secretary of War Cameron indicated, the runaway's final disposition was to be determined later. The New York Times called Butler's contraband decision, quote, a happy fancy, end quote, 
a happy fancy that settled the question of what to do with that first handful of slaves that made their way to Fort Monroe. But the paper continued on, accurately predicting that when the number of runaways who made their way to Union armies swelled to tens of thousands, then the government would have to devise a more permanent solution. But already there were some in the North who recognized that a momentous step had been taken. Whatever their legal status, Henry Ward Beecher fully grasped the political significance of the ever-growing number of runaway slaves making their way to Union lines and to freedom. Beecher declared, You may call them contraband. You may with dexterity call them ingenious or evasive names. But the Southern law that said slave is broken. Slaves in the possession of the government of these United States can be nothing else than men. They are emancipated. After Major General Benjamin Butler heard that Washington approved of his decision to declare runaway slaves contraband of war, the commanding general at Fort Monroe received a congratulatory letter from Postmaster General Montgomery Blair. Blair told Butler he was right in his decision concerning the slaves, but then Blair reminded Butler that, quote, the business you are sent upon is war, not emancipation, end quote. Well, Benjamin Butler soon enough got down to the business of war, and, not surprisingly, he made quite a hash of it. General-in-Chief Winfield Scott had been exceedingly dubious about entrusting strategically important Fort Monroe to a political general like Benjamin Butler, but Scott finally gave in to the lobbying of Butler's powerful friends in Washington. But then, hoping to ensure that Butler could not cause too much military mayhem at his isolated post, Scott gave instructions that Butler was not to take any offensive action without express permission from the War Department. Nevertheless, Butler had not been at Fort Monroe a month before he decided to mount a wholly unauthorized attack on a forward Confederate outpost at Big Bethel, about eight or so miles northwest of the fortress. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. And join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. 
During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Butler's ever-increasing troop strength at Fort Monroe worried John Bankhead Magruder, the commander of Confederate forces in the Department of the Peninsula. Magruder, a handsome 54-year-old West Point graduate, was known to his friends as Prince John because of his flamboyant behavior, fashionable clothing, and penchant for lavish entertainment. He was also known, even in the hard-drinking old army, for his excessive consumption of alcohol. In May 1861, a month after Magruder's resignation from the U.S. Army, Robert E. Lee gave him command of the strategic Virginia Peninsula southeast of Richmond, and Prince John set about organizing his forces and preparing the region's defenses. As the Union force at Fort Monroe continued to grow in size, there was increased skirmishing between Confederate troops and the Federal patrols that ventured out into the surrounding countryside. And despite Butler's orders against foraging, many Federal officers, because of the poor management of the commissary, allowed their men to supplement their rations with food taken from nearby farms. And some Union soldiers, as they searched for foodstuffs, also engaged in senseless vandalism. To curb the Federal patrols, to stop the foraging and vandalism, and also to buy time for the strengthening of his other defenses, Magruder, who had set up his headquarters at Yorktown, decided the time for action had come. He would bring on a fight in the vicinity of Fort Monroe and give Butler a bloody nose. To that end, Magruder ordered Colonel Daniel Harvey Hill to take command of the Confederate outpost at Big Bethel, where a clapboard church was located on the north side of Wythe Creek, where the Hampton-York Highway crossed the stream over a wooden bridge. The shallow, sluggish watercourse itself was a portion of the northern branch of the Back River. The rise upon which the church sat fell off on two sides into an extensive morass of mud, rushes, sassafras bushes, and cypress and juniper trees. South of the creek, across the bridge from the church, there was an extensive area of cultivated fields, fences, and orchards, amidst which sat several farmhouses. Since the low, swampy nature of most of the terrain in the area made cross-country movement difficult, if not impossible, the bridge at Big Bethel was a strategic point for the control of north-south travel on the lower peninsula below Yorktown. Daniel Harvey Hill had about 1,400 Confederate troops to defend the place. There was his own 1st North Carolina, a company of the 3rd Virginia, a handful of cavalry, and six guns from an elite old artillery militia outfit, the Richmond Howitzers. Hill was a West Point graduate, class of 1842, and during the Mexican War he had earned a reputation for reckless courage under fire. At Big Bethel, the cantankerous Hill proved he was still always ready for a fight. Reaching the Big Bethel area on June 7th, D.H. Hill immediately had his men start to construct earthworks, about which there was much grumbling at the time, but which several days later, during the battle, proved their worth many times over and caused the grumblers to change their tune. 
On June 9th, with the digging done, Hill deployed most of his troops to cover the roadway and the bridge crossing. The main Confederate redoubt was located on the north side of the creek, but a small forward bastion with one gun was located to the left of the road on the south side of the sluggish and shallow watercourse. Hill deployed small detachments as well at spots a bit upstream and downstream where Union attackers might ford the creek. Butler took Magruder's bait, and so the next night, June 10th, Fort Monroe's commander, intending a surprise attack, sent about 4,400 men marching off at 1 a.m. in two columns. One column was made up of the 3rd New York and the 5th New York, the 5th being one of those regiments uniformed in the colorful Zouave outfit. And then the other column included the 7th New York and parts of the 1st Vermont and 4th Massachusetts. The two columns, marching in the dark from separate camps, were composed of green troops and inexperienced officers. And, as you might guess, this was all a recipe for disaster. The 3rd New York blundered into the 7th New York, and in the dark both Union regiments opened fire upon one another. Before the shooting stopped, 21 men were wounded by friendly fire, two of them mortally. The colonel of the 5th New York argued for calling off the operation, since the disastrous friendly fire incident had left many of the Union soldiers shaken and demoralized, and perhaps more to the point, the element of surprise had been lost since the Confederates would now be on full alert after hearing the musket and artillery fire. But the expedition's commander, a Massachusetts colonel named Ebenezer Pierce, insisted on continuing. Ebenezer's a cool name. Uh-huh. Anyway, Pierce insisted on continuing on, and when the 5th New York got within a mile of Big Bethel, skirmishers under the command of Captain Hugh Judson Kilpatrick were thrown out front. Kilpatrick will gain some measure of fame later on in the Civil War as a Union cavalry commander, although Kilpatrick's aggressiveness and recklessness with his men's lives earned him the cynical nickname Kill Cavalry. At Big Bethel, another officer of the 5th New York who will go on to bigger things, Governor K. Warren, then a lieutenant colonel, soon rode up to assume command of the skirmishers, moving cautiously toward Big Bethel. On the Confederate side, Magruder had arrived on the scene, and he and Hill would work well together during the upcoming fight, even though personally they um, struggled in their relationship. But like I just said, on this occasion, to their credit, they laid all that aside and they proved to be an effective command team. Well, it seems the first shot of the battle was fired around 9 a.m. when one of the guns of the Richmond Howitzers sent a shell screaming toward the advancing Yankees. As the Federals advanced, they were stunned when they realized the Confederates had erected field fortifications. Nevertheless, Pierce attempted to deploy his force on both sides of the road and follow Butler's orders, which were that the Union soldiers should fire one volley and then charge the enemy with the bayonet. Since Butler was safely back at Fort Monroe and he had issued those orders beforehand as part of an amateurish attack plan that made no provision for Confederate entrenchments or batteries, Pierce should have perhaps made the decision to scrap Butler's plan and instead proceed with a different plan of attack that actually fit the circumstances. The Federal advance through the open fields was quickly broken up by Confederate artillery fire. Some of the Union soldiers continued to more move forward as best they could, while others sought cover in the woods and roadside ditches. 
Two days after the battle, Private George Malloy of the 5th New York described the chaotic fight in a letter to his wife. Quote, About nine o'clock we halted in the woods for a rest and to prepare for what was coming. We were within half a mile of the enemy's camp and all very tired from marching all night, the distance of about eight miles without any sleep and but little rest. We had just stacked our arms and sat down when the bugle sounded to fall in line. Some of the scouting party ahead came back with the news that the enemy was just ahead in full force of about five thousands. We came upon the field and had just time to form in line when the ball was opened by the enemy sending into our ranks a shower of balls. The enemy were not in line of battle on the open field as we expected to find them, but entrenched behind a thicket of brush and woods, and when we came upon the field we could not see a man of the enemies. They were completely in ambush and within the embankment of one of the strongest fortifications in this section of the country. End quote. After describing how his part of the line captured a part of the Confederate works located on the south side of the creek, Malloy went on to tell what happened when they were called upon to go to the aid of some hard-pressed comrades. Quote, this was the worst of all. We had to cross a plowed field within fifty yards of the enemy and open to their fire, which came thick and fast. I can't begin to describe the scene which here met the eye. I will only tell a few instances. A lieutenant of artillery received a cannonball, shattering him to pieces and throwing him across one of his own pieces. A man behind him was shot in the breast and another in the heart, dying instantly. I saw another having his arm blown away just below the elbow. And Mr. Griggs, the young man that went to see you, was cut in two by a cannonball, and third sergeant was killed, and our first corporal badly wounded. End quote. The cannoneers of the Richmond Howitzers sighted their guns with deadly accuracy and accounted for many of the Union casualties at Big Bethel. Private Reynold M. Kirby and his comrades lost the use of their gun when the priming wire, a thin metal spike used to pierce the flannel cartridge bag, broke off in its vent. Kirby described the fighting in a letter to his mother. Quote, we received information that the enemy was approaching in superior numbers. The rumor was one of those that we've become accustomed to hear so often that we paid little attention to it but as a precautionary measure, prepared as fast as possible to receive them perfectly, when in entrenchment we received messenger after messenger that they were approaching rapidly, estimating their numbers at various sizes, I suppose in proportion to the fear of each man. Still, however, we couldn't bring ourselves to believe they were really coming, till between the two houses in our front we could see their glistening bayonets like a forest of steel. Beautifully, they came up in heavy column as if to sweep us from the earth, and we expected an instant charge, but they halted in front of the houses on the road before spoken of, when they planted one of their pieces and opened a heavy fire upon us, in reply to ours which had been opened at a distance of six hundred yards. The time occupied by them in forming their column of attack was employed by our men in loading our pieces and making our caissons and horses secure. Our gun, that is the one at which I was stationed, which was nearest to them, soon opened its mouth and constantly repeated its fire, till unfortunately our priming wire was broken off in the vent of the gun, totally disabling the piece for the day completely. Great was our disappointment when the order was given to run the gun into the swamp. End quote. On the Confederate left, a column of Federal infantry waded through a shallow spot in the creek and prepared to launch an assault on the Confederate redoubt. 
They were the only Union soldiers to actually make it to the far side of the creek during the battle. But after crossing the creek, two rushes failed to carry the Union infantry up to the southern breastworks. The third charge was led by Major Theodore Winthrop, a member of Butler's staff who had asked permission to join the expedition to Big Bethel rather than be left behind at Fort Monroe. Winthrop was climbing over a fence, sword in hand, calling for the nearby Union soldiers to follow him when he was cut down by a rebel bullet. From inside the Confederate position, D.H. Hill saw Winthrop fall and gave him grudging praise, saying, quote, He was the only one of the enemy who exhibited even an approximation of courage during the whole day. End quote. After the repulse of that last Union assault on the Confederate left, Pierce ordered a withdrawal. It was about 1 p.m. The withdrawal quickly degenerated into chaos. Governor K. Warren sought to bring some order to the confusion and pleaded that Pierce remain on the field and organize the rear guard, but Pierce declined that honor. The last shot fired by the Confederate artillery killed Lieutenant John T. Grebel. Grebel had commanded the Union artillery throughout the entire action, and as the withdrawal ordered by Pierce started to turn ugly, Grebel strove to cover the increasingly chaotic retreat. The last Confederate shell exploded near Grebel, and a large fragment tore off part of his skull, killing him instantly. Lieutenant Grebel died fighting his guns. He was the first regular Army officer and first West Point graduate to be killed in action during the Civil War. Warren personally placed Grebel's body onto an artillery limber so that his fellow officers' remains could be removed from the battlefield. Most of the Union soldiers, tired, hungry, dejected, fled southward as fast as their feet could carry them. Zouave Philip Wilson called it, quote, the most damned disgraceful retreat I ever witnessed, and one for which there was no excuse whatever, end quote. But some Union soldiers followed Lieutenant Colonel Warren's example and stayed behind to help their wounded comrades join the rear of the retreat. Only when the Confederates eventually started to advance from their fortifications did Warren and this small band leave the battlefield. Big Bethel, by the Civil War's later standard of bloody battles, was really little more than a skirmish. The inexperienced participant spoke of the furious firing of muskets and of cannons roaring in one continuous blast, but in reality, Big Bethel was a battle of much sound but little fury. An accurate accounting of the casualties suffered in the fight is difficult, but officially, Butler would report 76 casualties, 18 killed, 53 wounded, and 5 missing. Confederate losses were 1 killed and 10 wounded. Despite its small scale, Big Bethel was the Civil War's first land battle, and so it was a traumatic experience for many of the neophyte soldiers who participated in it. As the victors slowly made their way across the fields and through the woods, they were sickened and saddened by the carnage. A Confederate officer from North Carolina would never forget that, quote, the scene was one of perfect rout, horrible beyond description, men with limbs shot off, brains oozing out, and all sorts of horror, end quote. Another Southerner said, quote, The gay-looking uniforms of the New York Zouaves contrasted greatly with the pale, fixed faces of their dead owners, end quote. The Southern public was overjoyed by news of the victory on the Virginia Peninsula. 
The Richmond Dispatch, then the South's most widely read newspaper, called Big Bethel, quote, one of the most extraordinary victories in the annals of war. Does not the hand of God seem manifest in this thing? End quote. Another Southern newspaper, the Charlotte Western Democrat, announced that, quote, the first great battle for Southern independence has been fought, end quote. And then Southerners pointed to the casualty list as evidence that one Confederate soldier could whip at least 10 Yankees. Well, the North, of course, was shocked by the defeat at Big Bethel. Newspaper editorials asked why the battle had been so badly bungled and demanded to know why there had been so many casualties from friendly fire. They wanted to know why Pierce's force had been unable to drive off an enemy but one-fourth its size. And Butler made sure that Pierce became the public scapegoat for the disaster. But many officers and soldiers who fought at Big Bethel blamed their commanding general back at Fort Monroe for the embarrassing defeat. A member of the 5th New York said men from the Empire State shouldn't be required to serve under Massachusetts generals, quote, who have been fledged in the foul nest of party politics without the least military merit, end quote. Despite the manifest demonstration of Pierce's incompetence on the field of battle at Big Bethel, a huge portion of the responsibility for the defeat must nevertheless be placed on Butler. He overstepped his authority to undertake the expedition, and then the battle plan itself was of dubious quality, and the coordination of the different units involved was awful. For example, the plan for the initial approach march was far too complicated to be performed in the dark by inexperienced troops. Even later on in the war, veteran formations found it difficult to successfully execute such maneuvers at night. And Butler, without even the knowledge that the Confederate force had constructed field fortifications, his preconceived notion that the affair could be settled by a straight-on bayonet charge that would scatter the enemy was utterly ridiculous. Private Henry Benton of the 1st North Carolina said, quote, I guess they found out their mistake. The prisoners that were took said that they would not have to fight, but that we would have run or surrendered, end quote. Even Butler's hometown newspaper, the Boston Evening Telegraph, concluded that, quote, The plan was conceived in ignorance of facts and error of judgment, and apparently executed in the spirit of its conception, end quote. For his part, Magruder was lucky. He ordered D.H. Hill to Big Bethel, but it was only Hill who, once there, ordered his men to start digging and construct entrenchments and batteries. In an open field contest with the 4,400 strong Union force, the 1,400 Southerners couldn't possibly have prevailed. So Hill's field fortifications no doubt saved the Confederate defenders from being manhandled by the numerically superior Federal attackers. We'll let one of the defeated, retreating New Yorkers have the last word on the affair, since he probably spoke for most of the Union and Confederate soldiers who fought at Big Bethel when he wrote, I have seen enough to satisfy me that warfare ain't play. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery by Eric Foner. Not to take anything away from the soldiers of both sides who fought at Big Bethel, but of the two events we talked about in this episode, the one that had the most significance as far as its overall impact on the war 
was Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory deciding to act on that impulse to escape to the freedom the Union Army represented. And again, not to take anything away from the men of both sides who fought in the battle, but Tracy and I think those three runaway slaves showed just as much courage in what they did as any of the soldiers at Big Bethel. So while there are a couple of decent books out there on the battle, our official book recommendation for this episode is The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery by Eric Foner. And don't tell anyone, but if you go to the website, we'll also put up those two books about Big Bethel. You can find all of our book recommendations, official and otherwise, at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also find links there to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. And we're grateful to everyone who has liked us on Facebook or followed us on Twitter lately. We appreciate the interest and the support and encouragement. And thanks to everyone who is still giving the podcast those great five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. And those are awesome, especially since they help other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And speaking of ratings and reviews on iTunes, don't forget that tomorrow, uh, tomorrow being Monday the 18th, we'll release a special bonus episode of the podcast. You remember that a couple of weeks ago, uh, you guys just missed just missed the goal on that iTunes challenge we put out there. But with tomorrow being the one-year anniversary of the podcast launch, we decided that that was a worthy enough reason to go ahead and release that bonus episode anyway. And so it'll be up tomorrow, uh, probably tomorrow evening after work. As we wrap things up, we'd like to thank Peter K., Johnny B., and Frank T. for their donations this past week. And, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, on the podcast. That's the music you hear at the beginning and end of every show. Well, all right. Next week, we'll be doing an episode titled, Why They Fought, in which we look, broadly speaking, at the motivations behind why northern and southern men signed up to fight. And after that, we'll finally get to the first battle of Manassas. But for right now, we appreciate that you gave a listen to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.